The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start, if we might. And uh, tonight will be very different from last week, kind of from negative infinity to positive infinity, from, from hell to heaven, literally, that's what we're studying tonight is the doctrine of heaven. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we have tonight to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to study your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would be here in our midst, Lord, strengthening us to hear your word, O oh Lord. I pray that you would greatly increase our longings after heaven. Father, I pray that we would we would yearn for it, that we would have a sense of it, of its of its um, power and its its draw on us, that we would be heavenly minded, Father. I pray that you would enable me to teach the word so clearly and powerfully that a, a hope for heaven, for the future glory, would so grip our hearts that we would be pure in our lives and faithful in our earthly responsibilities, that you would be glorified in everything that we do, and that we would honor you by simply wanting what it is you want to give us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, last week I said that we were going to be assembling a book, a booklet of all the handouts. I guess I didn't realize how profuse were those handouts. Um, uh, Tom Knight has worked faithfully the last week, and we are up to 124 pages, and that doesn't include tonight's handout, which is 17. So um, we'll, we'll have this available, um, I guess, over the next week or so, and just, I guess it would be in the Resource Center, or perhaps uh, at my next Acts class that I guess is going to start next week. So it's, it's heading there. First of all, our machine can't staple it. It, it's too big. It's too many sheets. So it has to be printed out outside. That's what's going on. But there it is. If you want to come and look at what you might get, um, and it's for free, uh, but it'll be available, God willing, next time. So we'll include the, this week's um, study on heaven and, uh, and just be looking for it. And we'll make more than um, the number of people that have been coming on Wednesday, so people who weren't able to make it on Wednesday nights would have one. But tonight we're going to study uh, the doctrine of heaven. And uh, I want to begin by looking at the verse in Colossians that I preached on some uh, time ago, uh, which is going to guide our, our thoughts tonight. And that is that heavenly mindedness is commanded. Heavenly mindedness is commanded. In Colossians 3, 1 and 2, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Uh, the verse continues, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's clearly thinking not just about the present you know, reign of Christ in the heavenly realms, we should think about that, but it's also that the, the motion, the direction of this command is future-oriented. Uh, set your minds on what you're going to get when Jesus returns. Set your minds on those things. Heavenly mindedness is commanded. Now, some people think that heavenly mindedness is a detriment uh, to productive earthly living, like Oliver Wendell Holmes thought that. Uh, he said some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You've probably heard that before. 
another preacher I, I heard uh, said once, I've never met anyone like that. Have you? Have you ever met anyone that, that's so heavenly minded they're doing nothing for God here on earth? I don't meet any. The people that are really, really heavenly minded, uh, C.S. Lewis says, are uh, very active in serving God. He said this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have uh, become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. That's C.S. Lewis. I love that. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So what he's saying there is that heavenly mindedness is good for earthly service. And it makes sense, too, because if you're going to make a difference in this world, you're going to meet opposition. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to be opposed. And Jesus said, blessed are you uh, when you're persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, as you're going through that experience of persecution, it's heavenly mindedness that enables you to persevere. It's because your heart is set on heaven that you're able to endure and to keep going in that ministry. And if you know anything about some of these great things that were achieved, you look at the conquest, the spiritual conquest of the Roman Empire, that was not achieved easily. It was achieved through great suffering. And it was achieved by people who were able to endure that suffering because they knew that this world is not all there is. They were yearning to go to heaven. They were glad to give their lives as martyrs. Actually, when that period ended, some were sad it was over and were yearning to find some way to still be martyrs when nobody was getting killed anymore for the faith. That's what really led to the whole monastic movement where extreme asceticism came in um, because the people wanted to suffer in the body for, for Christ. There was a yearning to do that. Origen wanted to go and die as a martyr like his father was about to go do. Um, there was a yearning for that. That's a heavenly mindedness. And, and the whole thing that's going on there... Uh, is that because these people were willing to uh, live for, for, uh, for uh, heaven, they were willing to suffer greatly here on earth. So C.S. Lewis is right. Bottom line is, it doesn't matter what Oliver Wendell Holmes says, Paul commands us to set our hearts on things above. And so, so much for Oliver Wendell Holmes. We need to do it. And uh, as I've mentioned in sermons recently a number of times, it's not some guilty pleasure that you can only do a little you know, like eat honey, but eat just a little too much and you'll vomit. There's no such thing as too much of this. Too much meditation on heaven. It just, it's impossible. It's always that we do it too little. We think too little of what God's giving us, all right? And so we need to focus uh, on it. Now, there are some foretastes that are marvelous, uh, tantalizing foretastes. I'm not going to take time to read this, all right? We have a 17-page handout here. I've done this enough. I've been doing this for years now. Nine years, I think, we've been doing Acts. I know I will not get through a 17. I, I get, my average is about 10 to 11 pages for, per hour, with gusts up to 13, maybe. But I've never hit 17, and I don't think I ever will. So we're just going to skip this. But basically, this is a guy who's dying of consumption, and uh, he is so saturated in a foretaste of heaven 
that uh, he can scarcely express his joy. He can't even, can't even speak, but he's writing down of his experience of glory. And uh, I'll tell you this, wouldn't that be nice to live that way? To be so heavenly minded that you just can taste it. It's almost like you just already can experience it here on earth. Uh, This is the happiness that God uh, has for us. Everybody seeks happiness. But this man, Richard Robarts, uh, nothing earthly could produce the kind of happiness. You know, people are standing by his bedside watching him die with great sufferings. He coughs up blood and saying, I would love to trade places with you. Because I see the, the rapture, the heavenly experience you're having. I would, I would go, go through the physical stuff you're going through if I could just have that certain a sense of heaven here on earth. Well, I think we can have more of a sense of heaven on earth than we do. Um, I don't know that we can reach that level. That's something God gives or he doesn't. But um, I think we can have more of a sense. And I'd like to lead you in that direction tonight. I'd like to give you this uh, handout so you can continue your med- meditations and, and, uh, and prepare yourself for heavenly mindedness. But I do think it's possible for us um, to have a greater sense of it. I write this here. If you could walk in the streets of the New Jerusalem this afternoon for one hour, when you return to earth, would not earthly concerns seem ridiculous to you? I mean, they really would. They would diminish. They would seem small. And your, your power to address them would seem so great. Um, because you just spent some time walking in the New Jerusalem. Would you care at that point who won whatever national championship was the next thing being contended? You wouldn't. The things we, we get so wrapped up in, the things we get so concerned on, really is nothing compared to what God is giving us. All right, so heavenly mindset. We've already quoted Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We have, therefore, a present duty. And that duty, according to Colossians, is that we should seek heaven and think heaven. That's what the, the verbs are. That's what it says in Colossians. We should seek the things above and we should think about the things above. Uh, This is what he's commanded us to do. Our rich inheritance is the new heaven and new earth. We should therefore fill our minds with the biblical data. What kind of existence will we have? We should feed our faith and set our hope on the promises of God. Think of Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. It says there, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. Now, people who say such things show show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. Longing for a better country. Oh, yearning for it. Recently, I've been reading to one of my kids um, the Randy Alcorn novel, Safely Home. And you know, the Chinese Christians in those house churches, whenever heaven was mentioned, you could hear in the novel, you could hear these, these audible groans, these, these yearnings for it. And I think they feel it more acutely than we do because their earthly circumstances are so tough. And they're facing arrest and persecution. And so they really are aggressively yearning for heaven. I think it would do us good as well. Longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, it's an interesting verse if you think about it. In other words, it seems that God would be ashamed of us if we were not longing for the home he's preparing. If you don't live your life longing for heaven, then there's a sense in this verse, at least, that God could be ashamed of you. Conversely, if you are longing for a better country and you're admitting that you're an alien stranger here, then God's not ashamed to be called your God. Though there's ample reason for him to be ashamed of all of us. We would all acknowledge that. Anybody honest said, God has every right to be ashamed of me. But he's not ashamed of you if you're yearning for heaven and confess yourself to be an alien and stranger here. That's what that verse is saying. Christ openly commanded this, and he appealed to it in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. 
He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and, and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there's a lot of things I could say about that, but one of the things is that Jesus clearly wants your heart on heaven. That's what he's saying. If your treasure is earthly, then your heart's going to be earthly or earthward, focused on earth. And he doesn't want that. He wants your heart focused on heaven. He really does. And so that's the whole direction there of these verses. Set your heart on things above. Or here he says, store up treasure in heaven. Um, Revelation, the book of Revelation was given to help us do this. And we're going to go to some verses in Revelation in the study so that we can set our hearts. And it's hard to imagine. Uh, we, we really would have no knowledge of what it's going to be like if God hadn't revealed it to us. Now, our future is that Christ, in verse 4, will appear. He is our life, and he will appear, and we will appear with him in glory. You know, one of the indications there in Colossians and other places is that we are not what we appear to be. We, we are not what we appear to be. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. So the world doesn't see us properly. Now, it's not in the way you think in your pride. Okay, We're just taking it biblically. What it means is that we are children of God and we are set for glory. We are adopted into his family and someday we will be radiantly glorious. And the world doesn't see us that way. We don't see each other that way. That really is the burden of, of C.S. Lewis's great sermon, Weight of Glory. We should be bearing the weight of each other's glory because someday uh, each of these people that you're dealing with every day will be incredibly glorious, talking about Christians there. And so that's what he's uh, really addressing there, uh, that uh, that is our future. We will be glorified with Christ. Christ is going to return, he the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he is revealed as what he is, then we'll be revealed with him. That's what he's getting at there. That's what it says in Colossians 3. And so we will be with the Lord forever, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That's our future. That's what we're heading toward. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the details. Let's see heaven revealed just by passages of Scripture. I haven't been there. I haven't been caught up to the third heaven and heard inexpressible things that man's not permitted to talk about. I'm not in that condition. I've asked him for it, but he hasn't done it yet. Of course, uh, the Apostle Paul had the thorn in the flesh to keep him from being you know, puffed up by such great revelation. So I guess if I were going to take that journey, I would have to be willing to make the exchange. But in any case, I haven't been given the option. What I have is what you have. I have the scriptures. And they say more about heaven than you think they do. They say more about heaven than I think they do, even having read Randy Alcorn's 500-page book, which is weighty enough. But there's actually a lot about heaven in Scripture, and so we have a lot to learn about it. First of all, heaven is misunderstood, even by most Christians. <clears throat> so Randy Alcorn wrote his book called Heaven, specifically to rectify the gross neglect of good teaching on heaven that plagues the church today. Uh, he relates a conversation he had with a pastor who confessed to him uh, this. Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that? Depressed about heaven. Well, frankly, I would be depressed if heaven is like what many people think it is. Wouldn't you? I mean, I've talked about this many times in my sermons. Randy Alcorn's book has affected me, and so I don't have anything new to say about that. But the sense of doing anything forever and ever bothers me even if it's my favorite thing. I mean, you name your favorite food, and would you like to eat it for 10 billion eons? I mean, at some point, you're going to want to change. 
You wanted some variety. Even if you took your favorite hundred foods, it wouldn't last that long you know, on some kind of rotating schedule. You know, even the best chef, sooner or later, it's going to get old, all of it. Well, the fact is we really can't conceive of heaven, but those kinds of thoughts are actually harmful. I actually think they're satanic. Just as it's kind of helpful for us to think, uh, he, for, for Satan, if we think of him as some caricature figure with the pointy ears and all that that enjoys being down in the fiery netherworlds and all that. That is not the truth. He's filled with rage because he knows he's going to the lake of fire. He doesn't live there. It's not his native habitat. It's his punishment. And so, therefore, it serves him to foster this kind of false image. And, therefore, I think it does serve him to foster a false image of heaven, too, as a boring place that none of us wants to go to, if truth be told. So it really helps him because all of the benefits that we're talking about here of being heavenly-minded are lost to us if we don't really want to go there. And so we actually have to work to overturn this. You know, why doesn't this man rather die? He says, I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why, said Randy Alcorn. The pastor answered, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's also terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. So many Christians actually misunderstand heaven that way. And uh, I think most Christians that I've talked to since I've read Al Alcorn's book acknowledge that they've had at least some thoughts like that. <clears throat> Even that, that hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. It's like, well, we're not making any progress here. We're not getting anywhere. You know, we've been here for 10,000 years and, and we're not getting anywhere. It's a little depressing, a bit oppressive, if you look at it one way. And uh, that's the very thing that Alcorn wrote the book to get rid of. That's, it's ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous to think you could be bored in the presence of God. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, it's just ludicrous. There cannot be a more inconceivably ridiculous outcome than to be in the presence of the God who created heaven and earth and think you're going to be bored. To put it, this is a gross understatement, but, but uh, God is an exciting being. <laughs> He's a creative being. He does a lot of interesting things. He has a lot of interesting thoughts. He's a great conversation partner. You're not going to be bored. It cannot be. But uh, you can see why Satan would uh, voice that on us. And so, therefore, uh, we have to uh, fight against it. Alcorn talks about Mark Twain's poor views of heaven in uh, Huckleberry Finn. I love this quote. The Christian spinster Miss Watson takes a dim view of Huck's fun-loving spirit. According to Hank, she went on and told me about the good place, heaven. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much on it. He's not that interested. I asked her if she, if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. <laughs> I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Well, if you were here last week, you'd realize what a tragic statement that is. All right, that's part of the whole satanic misunderstanding. But you can see the satanic misunderstanding of heaven as well. And uh, so much from Mark Twain. So too many people have a gross misunderstanding of our heavenly future. And sadly, many fine Bible teachers have done very little to help us. Here is a listing, I'm not going to read it, but of great theological works that have given very little attention to heaven. They write very little about it. Very little. Lloyd-Jones, Louis Burkhoff, that was my systematic theology when I went there. It's a, what is it? Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of pages long, 38 pages devoted to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, 15 pages to the intermediate state. 
and two pages to hell and one page to heaven. Maybe he ran out of time. Maybe it was a publisher's deadline and that was all he could give us on hell and heaven. But all I'm saying is there's a lot more than that to say about those two topics. And so the bottom line is, does the Bible really have so little to say about heaven? And the answer is absolutely not. Now, some people take this one verse out of context, 1 Corinthians 2.9. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, in other words, you really can't possibly understand heaven. And uh, no, no one has conceived it. It hasn't even entered our minds. So therefore, we don't have to think about heaven. Well, that's really false. Uh, you have to actually read the whole um, section, the whole verse, in order to understand it. This is what the uh, two verses side by side say. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? <laughs> Radically different. In other words, you can't imagine this. So therefore, God had to tell you. And guess what? He has told you. He has, in fact, told you about heaven by his spirit. That's what it's saying. And it actually fits completely into what he said in chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, in which it says, for since in the wisdom of God, uh, the world through his wisdom, through its wisdom, didn't know him. It, wasn't, it was not possible for the world's philosophers, like the Greek philosophers, to reason their way toward the true God. Not possible. Neither is it possible for us to reason our way toward the true heaven. It cannot be done. Instead, God had to reveal it by his spirit, and he has. So, we would have to say, not everything about heaven has been told us. That much we know. There are a lot of mysteries about heaven. A lot of things we don't know. Um, and so, we go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. There it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So, these things that God has told us, they are ours. And we can treasure them. We ought to think about them. We ought to try to put them together. Randy Alcorn advocates using some sanctified imagination. It'd be very interesting to see a debate between Randy Alcorn and John Calvin on that very point. Oh, would they disagree. Calvin hated the use of imagination. We cannot go beyond what Scripture says. And so, therefore, his descriptions tend to be a bit flat on some of these things. Alcorn goes so far beyond it that uh, his descriptions uh, tend to be a bit, uh, putting it charitably, imaginative. When we start talking about pets and other populated planets started, that started scaring me a little bit like Mormonism does. At any rate, uh, long story short, not everything in the book, I think, is rooted soundly in Scripture. However, I think he brings us back toward the middle of the road where we need to be. You know, there are ditches on each side. And I think, frankly, my, my mentor of 500 years ago, John Calvin, is in one ditch. In other words, hasn't thought enough about it. There's more that we could have said. We could have gone far, farther than that. Whether Randy's in another ditch, I don't know. We can debate. But um, all I know is it's better for us to think more about heaven than we usually do. Okay? So the scripture talks about it and tells us what uh, it will be like. Let's start with this. Let's just start here. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Let's just start there. The scripture teaches this. The first concept comes in, uh, in Isaiah 65. Um, but uh, Second Peter says it quite plainly. In Second Peter 3.13, it says, In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. He calls it the home of righteousness. Okay, or Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Randy Alcorn in his book constantly capitalizes them. New heaven and new earth. It's, it's all capitalized. Not the and is capitalized, but they're places. And he, he really wants you to think of them as real created places rather than ethereal kind of things. 
And so the new earth is a place. It's a physical place. And it's amazing how much people stumble over that. They say, is the earth a place like where, that we'll be re- able to reach down and touch it and pat it and kind of make a sound as we, or is it just puffy or something? I don't know. Is it, you know, is it real? Um, and here's the thing. It must be real because each one of you is going to have a resurrection body. And that body is, is a physical body or it isn't a resurrection body and therefore it must have a place, uh, to be. And this is the, the thing. I think there's a direct connection between us, our bodies, and the earth. I think there's a direct connection linked for us in, in Romans chapter 8. We'll get to that in a minute. But basically then I speak of a resurrected earth. A resurrected earth. All right, so I think there's going to be a continuity from the present earth to the future earth and a radical difference too, just like there's going to be a continuity between our bodies now and the resurrected bodies, a continuity and difference. But there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, the new heaven will be God's dwelling place, a more beautiful than the present star-studded night sky. The new earth will be a radiant, luscious, remade place, free forever from bondage to decay, a world more pristine than Eden more exciting to explore than Lewis and Clark's exploration of the Pacific Northwest. Fantastic place. Now, for me, I look on them as forever together in my mind. They're just, you know. And why? Because uh, the New Jerusalem descended out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and that's where the throne of God is. And so heaven is where God has his throne, where he dwells. And he's going to dwell in the midst with us. So I used to think of new heaven up there, new earth down here, and we would be like taking a space shuttle to get up and then come back down. I just don't think. I think it's all one to some degree, although there's enough of a distinction so that we still keep the language of new heaven and new earth, but yet there's a free exchange between them. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses say completely different. In other words, there are some people in the new heaven and then those that weren't quite as righteous are in the new earth. We don't believe that. I just think there's a free concourse between the two all the time. That's the way I see it, new heaven and new earth, because they descend, the new Jerusalem descends, and they're together. All right, now the previous world is completely destroyed and in some sense removed or replaced or something to make way for this. People, boy, I'll tell you the debates over this. Is it just entirely gone and then something new in its place? Or is it just totally cleaned like a whiteboard that's just erased and then God draws something more beautiful on it? You know, which is it? And I tend toward the latter, not the former. I don't think it's going to be completely removed. I think it's going to be uh, renewed is a good word. You know how it says, at the renewal of all things, Jesus speaks this way, the renewal of all things. So I think it's the same earth, but completely renewed. I like resurrected the best. Second Peter 3.10, though, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be Laid bare. I looked at the Greek for that today, and it, there's, it's an interesting word. Um, exposed, revealed is another way to translate it. Um, cle- cleared away. But you get the sense that it's still there. The earth is there. It's just erased almost like a blank piece of paper ready for somebody to write something on it. That's the sense I get. Um, but the, the, all of the elements are melting, and so there's going to be this new thing taking place. So it's radically different, but yet there's still this continuity. All right, first, uh, he, uh, sorry, Hebrews 1, uh, 10 through 12 says this. Uh, In the beginning, O Lord, you lay the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. So, speaking of the removal of heavens and earth in that sense. Now, the perfect world will have, therefore, perfect beauty, and it will have natural, physical features. All right? 
uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 3, this is speaking of the New Jerusalem, but it's part of it. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Now, that's very significant to me. If you read Genesis chapter 2, remember how there's the description of a, wa- of a river running through the center of Eden, and then it divides out into four headwaters, and it gives the names of these four different rivers that go out through the whole world. You know, and, and uh, the Pishon and the Gihon and the, and the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they go out to these different places. And you get the sense that Eden was just meant to be a starting place for Adam and Eve. That's just where they were put. That's where it began. But they were supposed to fill the whole earth and subdue it and rule over it. The whole world was going to be their domain. And I envision, you know, I have this picture that maybe a canoe or something was their first mode of travel to get out of Eden and go to the rest of the world and see how beautiful it was. Of course, something terrible happened before they ever got out of Eden. But uh, again, there's that sense of, I don't know, that sense of adventure and exploration. In the pristine world now, in the pure world before the fall came. You see what I'm saying? And I think that's restored in Revelation 22. Isn't that beautiful? You have the throne, and the throne seems to be an infinite water source. (laughs) Because this river, the water of life, is flowing from the throne. So God is forever creating at least water. And it just flows. Where does it go to? I don't know, because there's no longer any sea. We'll get to that. But at any rate, it just goes. And there's this sense of movement It's not a stagnant pond. It's something moving. And then there's this tree. How do you picture the tree of life, a tree of life on both sides of a river? I don't know how to picture that. I once drew it like a big tree, like one of these, you know, trees you see down in the southern swamps with big root systems that are extending out, you know, like like that. That's the best I could make of it. I don't really know how one tree is on both sides of a river. But at any rate, there it is. There's the tree. But there's this physicality to it. Leaves, tree, water, river, that kind of thing. It's a place. And then it says, there's no longer any curse. Well, you know very well what curse that is. The curse was on physical creation because of Adam's sin. And so it says here in, in Romans 8, 19 through 23, the creation waits in, in, in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. You see the link between the physical creation and us. We're the ones that got it into trouble. <laughs> we got the physical creation in the trouble it's in now. That's what it says. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly uh, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the whole argument there? We and the physical creation are linked. God linked us together. And both of us are now groaning because something isn't right. Things are off. Something's amiss. There's a futility of frustration. There's corruption. Both of us are waiting for the same thing. And that's our final salvation. And what is our final salvation but the resurrection or the redemption of the body? And with our redemption, our bodily redemption, creation gets its bodily redemption too, a physical redemption, put it that way. That's the way I see it. Romans 8. So there's no longer any curse means we're in a perfect world. A beautiful, perfect world like it was meant to be. Yes. 
I can understand what it would mean that we groan, I really just take this as metaphorical. Um, I don't think that, you know, like in a Tolkien book that the trees are actually talking to us of how much they, you know, sorry all you Tolkien fans, but, you know, I'm not personifying creation or whatever. Uh, we are obviously unique in that we have intellectual abilities to groan with misery and sadness. That's the best I can take. It's metaphorical. But I think the way I see it is the... Futility or decay, corruption, the, the word corruption. I think that's the groaning. So, good question, thank you. All right, so there's the physical world, no longer any curse. There'll be new features too. They may trouble you, but what can you do? I'm sure you'll be happy there. Like, for example, Revelation 21.1, there was no longer any sea. But I like the sea. One of the whole problems I have with Alcorn's book is everything that he really likes is going to be in heaven no matter what the verse says. So that's one thing I've learned. I've learned. If he really likes something, it's going to be there. Um, I love I love the brother and I love his I don't know him personally, but I just love it. Um, if Randy, if you're listening to this, I didn't mean anything offensive to you. Uh, but I just find it interesting that we can argue that there actually might be a C. I'll just take it that there'll no longer be any C. I'm okay with that. Um, at any rate, there it is. It says also in Revelation 21:23, the sun does not, uh, sorry, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Now, that language leaves open the question: it may not need it, but the sun and the moon will be there anyway. But I, I, don't, I just think that's a little tricky. I think the implication from the fourth day. Remember that God said, "Let there be light" on the first day. It's not till the fourth day that the sun, the moon, and the stars get created. So God can do light. He's good at doing light. He doesn't need the sun and the moon to do light. So I think the point is that God's glory will so radiantly and beautifully shine in that new world that he won't need, you don't need the sun and the moon anymore or the stars. That's what I get out of it. And besides which, in the book of Revelation, the stars fell to the earth in Revelation chapter 6 anyway. So, I mean, the, the whole thing's changed. Everything's different. So we'll just let God define new heaven and new earth beauty. He's good at it. In Revelation 22.5, there'll be no more night. So you don't have a sea. You don't see, it seems like we don't have a sun or moon, doesn't mention stars, but they're implied. And then uh, you don't have any night, you know. And again, that's a bit implied in Genesis, you know. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. It's interesting. He didn't say that the light and the dark combination thing was good. It was the light that was good. Now, again, you may enjoy a nice walk out you know, at night and all that, but you probably enjoy it with some light, don't you? Isn't there some light when you go on those nice nighttime walks? I mean, very few of us really enjoy a completely pitch black walk. I mean, we were, we're looking for some moonlight, some starlight, something. So it's still the light that you like. Long story short, there'll be no more night. There it is. All right? Secondly, we will see God and Christ face to face. This is the best of all. He is the source of all the beauty after all. Nothing he makes is as glorious as he is. Nothing he makes is as fascinating as he is. All of it is a, is a dim reflection of his greatness. And so therefore, that we will get God, that we will see him, that we will have this kind of intimacy with him is the best part of all. Job 19 says this, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. That's an Old Testament man. Some people think the book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, I don't know that that's true, but it may be a way of saying it. But I do know this. What was his hope with this? He wants to see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. What a glorious thing that is. Well, this promise is stated over and over. Uh, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in, pure in heart, for they will see God. That's, that's what we get for the fact that God purified our heart by faith. We will get to see God. 
1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see uh, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I'll tell you this about that verse, Revelation 21, 3. That is such a summation of the yearning of God from the Old Testament. How many times does God talk about they will be my people and I will be their God? Over and over, that's what he's wanted all along. It's something he yearns for more than we do. And that's a sad thing, but that's just how much we're still in sin. But he really wants to be our God. And he wants us to be his people. And he wants to be with us. And he wants us to see his face. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. This is the very thing that Moses was forbidden. You remember that? Now show me your face, he said. He wanted to see his glory. He wanted to see the full glory of God. In Exodus 33:20, But, God said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. No one may see me and live. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have to be transformed in order to handle what God wants to give us. And what he wants to give us is a full revelation of his glory. All right? We will have that. Um, and uh, it's not just of God the Father, but also a full experience with Christ, the resurrected Lord. Uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had, uh, they had a meal with Jesus. Right? They got to sit in at table with him, and they got to talk to him and, and walk with him, and thought he was only a stranger to Jerusalem, and they didn't they didn't understand who he was. Um, Thomas got to put his hand in the nail marks. There was a, a physical relationship there. He says in Luke 24, "Flesh and uh, spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see, I have." They had a relationship with Jesus. So will we have. Now, you might say, I don't know how that works if there's a multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do we all get, what, two minutes with Jesus every millennia? Is that how it works? I don't know the mathematics of it. All I know is that we're going to have access to the Lord and we will enjoy him. And yes, he will still be in his resurrected body. How could it be otherwise? I, I don't understand how it works, but I know this, that if he's separated from his body, he's dead. That's what death is. So he will never be, he will never die again. Therefore, he'll never be separated from that resurrection body However, we understand that. So we will have a relationship with Christ. A physical relationship, a spiritual relationship as well. And in this sense, then, God himself will be our greatest reward, as we've said many times before and can't say enough. Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. That after he refused the filthy lucre from the battle of the, of the, uh, the kings, the king of Sodom offered him all this stuff and he was not interested. Lest, lest... Any man should say, I made Abram rich. Well, it isn't any man that made Abram rich. Who is it that makes Abram rich? Abraham. It is God. God says, I'll make you rich. You want how rich you'll be? You'll have me. <laughs> I'll be your reward. I love that. Uh, and then Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Is that true of you? That's the result of heavenly longing. Earthly things just shrink. They're just not important anymore. You lose your ambition for them. They don't matter. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's my portion? It's what you get. It's what's dish out, dished out to you on your plate. Well, what do I get? I get God. That's what I get. He's my portion forever. Meditate on that. My portion forever. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He who has God 
and all the world has no more than he who has God alone. <laughs> what does that make the world? Nothing. <laughs> you know, God plus zero is still God. And, and that's what he's saying. It doesn't matter how much of the present world stuff you have. It doesn't make a difference. It's all just a matter of stewardship and gifting and what God's intending for you to do. That's all it is. If you have God, you have everything. And that's what, he's, what it's saying. Lamentations 3.24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And I like this, Ephesians 1.13 and 14, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance or our inheritance. That is so beautiful. The down payment, the portion from the billions. So you get some small amount on which you're supposed to live. The full inheritance yet to come. Well, the Holy Spirit is that. So how could the inheritance be streets of gold? That's ridiculous. If the indwelling spirit is just a deposited, a small payment, the full amount is perfect fellowship with God. That's what it is. It could be nothing less. Yes, but I'm getting one of the pearly gates. That's what I get. It's like the gift under the tree or something like that. What do you get? I get one of the 12 pearly gates. Look, it's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with God. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, then takes some of that future sweet relationship with God and ministers it to you now when you need it. Someday, you'll be with me. Someday, you're my child, you're my son, my daughter. I love you, I'm with you. That's what he's doing. The indwelling Spirit's just ministering some of that full inheritance we get. Who is God? We get him. That's a beautiful thing. Now, it's also a place of ceaseless worship, Revelation 4. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall uh, down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. For you, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Just a glorious thing, uh, worship. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to say in a few minutes that we're going to be busy in heaven. We're going to have work to do. We're going to have responsibilities and all that. You say, well, how do we do the forever worship thing? Everything you do will be worship, all of it. It's what we're commanded now, but we will do it then. We're commanded now, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. We're supposed to be worshiping God while washing dishes, worshiping God while walking down the road, worshiping God while driving. Everything we do now should be a, a, an experience of worship. I'm saying should be, but maybe often isn't. Isn't that true? But in, then it will be. Everything you do will be worship, all of it. Now, that's not to say there will not be times of concentrated, assembled worship. I think there will be. I really believe that. But I just think that even there, there, while we're working in the new heaven and new earth, doing things, productive and fruitful things, we'll still be worshiping. There will be a glorious city, the new Jerusalem, a place of union between heaven and earth, as already mentioned. I saw the holy city, Revelation 21-2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So there it is, coming down from God. God has gotten it ready and down it comes. It's the place where he will dwell with uh, God's people forever. You may think, I don't like the city much. I'm actually more of a country person. Well, whatever it is you like about the country, if I can just say, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you like, the, do you like this country, wait till you see the real country. Wait till you see the new earth. Wait till you see all of its beauty. But concerning the city, you haven't seen a city yet either. All right? You've seen sinful city. You've seen Babel or Babylon. You've seen that. All right? You haven't seen the new Jerusalem. 
you will love the New Jerusalem because God made it. And if God made it, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. And you know its description is really staggering, something you can hardly imagine. Uh, just absolutely beautiful. The most beautiful city in history. You can't even say it's just more, it's not even worth saying it like that. It's larger, more luminescent, more serene and powerful. Uh, it says in Revelation 21:11, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. You know, the Revelation goes for uh, precious stones, like all these different beautiful stones and all of them refract the light and, and give different color. I don't know what that means. All I know is it's just going to be spectacularly beautiful. There'll just be a, a beautiful mixture of light and color and, and glory. It's just an incredible place. Um, God will dwell there, as we've already said, and its gates will constantly be open so the wealth of the nations can stream in. Revelation 21, 25, and 26. On no day will its uh, gates ever be shut for there'll be no night there and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure and clean there. It'll be perfectly pure forever. And it will be, apparently, immense and imposing. Now, some people take a metaphorical approach to this. I'm not. I'm just sticking with my whole engineering approach here, and I'm just going to take it literal and say that there's this unbelievably huge city, this cuboid city that's just immense, and I don't even know how it works. Now, I found a website which actually has a scale drawing of the city superimposed on the globe, on the Earth itself says that the diameter uh, is 8,000 miles or something all the way across, and uh, the city is 1,500 of those 8,000. So that's an awfully big city. For myself, I think it would kind of give a problem to the rotation of the earth, you know, like, you know, something like, you know how you balance your tires? I don't know how that works. So I just think, forget all those thoughts. Let's not worry about it. I think it's awful massive, but, you know, we won't worry about it. Um, it's just big, really, really big. The thing that gets me is the is the Z direction, the up direction. I mean, uh, something, you know, length and width, it's big, you know, like a th- you know, like almost half the size of the continental U.S. That's really big. That's a big city, big footprint there. But that's not it. It's the 1,500 miles straight up. I mean, what an elevator. I mean, just to get to the top floor, you know, I mean, that's just amazing. I, I don't know what to say except that it's just extremely big. It says as wide, as high as as wide and long, and it's just this perfect cube. And people say, look, it is just so clearly symbolic that to do this is ridiculous. Well, I'm not going to say I don't. The, the people who say that, they haven't been there yet either. We're all dealing with the text. So all I can say is, look, God will do what God will do. All I know is this speaks of, of, of hugeness, if that's a word. It speaks of an immensely big, beautiful place, the New Jerusalem. So there's the city. But don't so focus on Jerusalem, you forget the new earth. They're both there. There's going to be a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem. All of these things are spoken of in the book of Revelation. Okay, tremendous uh, size. We will also uh, sit at table with the king and eat with him. At a a banqueting table so lavish it cannot be described, and many will come from the east and the west and take their places at that table. Matthew 8.11 says that. They're going to sit at table with... You know, remember when Jesus said, uh, takes the wine, and he says, I will not drink it again until that day I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay? That points to, to a drinking of some sort in the Father's kingdom. This verse speaks of a banquet table in the, in the Father's uh, kingdom as well. You remember that Jesus, in his post-resurrection appearance, takes some broiled fish and eats it? Remember, I've noted that five of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances uh, refer to food or eating in some, some sense. I find that fascinating. So we're going to eat. How does that work with the resurrection body? I don't have any more idea than how the city can be that tall. I don't know how it works. I don't know what we're eating. 
You know, it's like certainly we'll be vegetarians except for the broiled fish thing. You know, I don't know what to say about that. The poor fish. I don't think PETA is going to be in heaven. That much I know. Those folks will be done with that whole problem. And God will save from them whoever he chooses. And they will be there and not worried anymore about the animals. Everything's going to be fine. If you look at the cover, there are pictures of little animals there. Like deer or something. But I don't know that that's an authoritative picture. I think it actually isn't. Um, but there might very well be animals. What they're eating, I don't know. But I do know that there are consistent pictures of banqueting in heaven. And fascinatingly, Jesus pictures himself as serving at table. Isn't that fascinating? I mentioned this before, but Jesus is actually going to serve table. Luke 12, 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at table, and will come and wait on them. Now, remember how much Peter struggled with that and did not want Jesus washing his feet? It just was unseemly to have the king down washing feet. That's not just not the way he saw it. Well, you know something? If you can't see Jesus doing that to you, then you really can't see yourself doing it for a category of others. You might see yourself doing it for Jesus, but you sure won't do it for anybody you think is beneath you. But Jesus throws the whole thing out the window when he, even in heaven, is serving. You know what he does? He is redeeming servanthood. When I preached on slavery, remember how I said, why doesn't God just get rid of slavery entirely? Entirely. Well, the reason is that we're going to be serving him in heaven. How can he do it? He can't get rid of servant. What he's going to do is get rid of wickedness in it. He's going to get rid of tyranny and abuse and all of that. And he's going to be serving too. The king serving and the, and the servant being king. That's how it's going to work. Everything's changed. The kingly part has changed. The servanthood part has changed. It's all there. So you're going to be surprised to have Jesus tap you on the shoulder and you turn and it's like, what would you like to drink? What can I get for you? And there he is. You won't be surprised, but how sweet that would be. And will you be ready to serve your brothers and sisters too? You will be. You'll be delighted to serve. It's the greatest place of honor there is. So it will be. He will serve at table. And we will be perfect in soul and in body. Conformed, it says, to the likeness of Christ. Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be a firstborn among many brothers. So we're predestined to be conformed to Christ. That's where we're going to end up. Conformed means like him. And I say like him in every regard. Not in his position. He is the only begotten son of God. And he has a role in heaven none of us ever will. We know that. We will not ever receive worship in heaven. That cannot be. It never will be. Jesus will receive worship in heaven because he deserves it. He's the, he's the creator and redeemer. But here's the thing. We'll be conformed to him in body and in soul or spirit. We'll be conformed to him inside and out. We will think like he thinks. We will love what he loves and hate what he hates. We will, we will, um, we will react emotionally as he does. In every regard, we will be conformed to him. So physically and uh, spiritually as well. So I uh, already covered the resurrection body earlier, but just to remind you, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Uh, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So you take those descriptions, an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. That's what you get. That's pretty good. I mean, that's incredible. Perfect body. Perfect body. All right? Uh, Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun. So it's going to be a radiant body. You will shine like the angels do. There will be a, a glory to you, like Moses' face. Remember that? Okay, or like Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, shining brightly. 
So there will be a radiance to you. You'll also be perfect in soul as well. Hebrews 12.23 says uh, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So they're already there. You know, the dead, the dead saints, their souls are already perfect or they couldn't be in the presence of God. But they're just waiting for the resurrection body. So we've got perfected souls. And the perfected soul means that you're only ever going to have perfect thoughts and feelings and reactions to everything. Isn't that wonderful? No more internal stuff at all. No more conflicts. No more second thoughts. No more covetousness or lust or impatience or greed or any of those things. It's gone. You'll be free. Free from all of that. How sweet will that be? There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He's going to wipe every tear from your eyes and old order of things will have passed away. You ought to meditate on each of those things. No more death. Just think about that for a while. What will that mean? No more death. No more mourning. No more mourning. Remember, I applied that last week with hell. You will not mourn about anything. You will not mourn about those in hell. You will not. And, and no more death or mourning or crying or, or even pain. Just meditate. How can you get through a physical world with no pain? You just can't, almost can't imagine it. So there'll be no pain. And I say to you, there'll be no, no psychological or mental pain. You will have no regrets at all about how you lived your life here on earth. Can you believe that? You'll have a full knowledge of how you lived your life here on earth and you won't regret any of it at all. None of it. You say, well, how can that be? There's so much sin. It just has to do with the grace of God. It has to do with what he has done and how glorious it is and what a great display of God's power and your weakness it is. That's how you'll think about it, I think. So no more any of those things. So there it is. We'll have perfect fellowship with one another. I mean, we really will really like each other. I mean, a lot. I mean, more than just that. We really love each other. We'll like, be excited to be there. They're like, oh, him again. I did, I did the beautiful hill up here in this section of the new earth last week. Do you have to do it with him again? He's such a bore, you know? None of that will be free from that. None of them will be a bore. <laughs> Sorry. Even if they were, you would tolerate it incredibly. You would be so patient. But uh, there'll be neither boring people, nor will there be people who can't tolerate boring people. I mean, none of that. We'll be in perfect fellowship with one another. Think of what First John says. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Do you see that? Isn't that sweet? Now you think about that and say, well, isn't he talking about just like fellowship like here in, in church? It's like, well, do you think, really think the Apostle John saying so that you can have temporary fellowship with us until we die? He's not talking about that. He's talking about eternal fellowship, that we can be friends forever. Fellowship with each other forever. And so I love, again, Hebrews 12. You've come to Mount Zion. What a beautiful place. To the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Just take that expression, joyful assembly. That's what we'll be together. We'll enjoy each other together with the angels. We'll be together enjoying each other. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And we'll have fruitful work to do. You think, well, it, doesn't it say that we're forever in our Sabbath rest? We will cease from our labor, our works. I just don't think that the interpretation of that is proper, that we will do no productive things, no productive things in heaven. How can Jesus serve table and that not be called work in some way? So whatever it is you think about work, I just think it's the feudal cursed work that's done. That's done. Or we could say the plan of salvation work, that's done. Redemptive plan is finished. We're redeemed. We're done. But that doesn't mean that we're, we're not going to be able to do productive things in the new heaven and the new earth. I think we will. We just won't have frustration in it. Uh, it says his servants will serve him. So I imagine that that means that we will be doing work. Um, not just worshiping him, but also uh, serving. And Revelation 21, 24 through 26 speaks about the gates open and the, and the wealth of the nation streaming in. So they're bringing what they're making, I guess. Or, or you know, it's just coming in the city. 
And so it's, there's this productive stuff going on out in the new earth and it's being brought into the city and the gates are always open. So it's not going to be boring at all. There's, there's a whole world to explore and a whole world to, to develop and it's going to be incredible. It's going to be wonderful. There will be a hierarchy of authority and responsibility. In other words, we're not all going to be equals in that one sense. There will be different positions in heaven um, and different responsibilities. However, there will be no tyranny and no jealousy. Okay, So there will be still, I think, archangels, ruler angels, like there are now. There will be some angels in authority over other angels. And so I think there will be some redeemed people in authority over other redeemed people. Now, you may say, well, I want one of those... You know, I've always been ambitious, you might say. And I want one of those good positions. Well, you have, you're in good company. James and John wanted the same thing, you remember? James and John, were, they were angling for the position. They wanted, they wanted to, you know, so they went to the king and they said, grant that one of, you know, that the mother says this, but Mark says it's James and John. I really think it was James and John put the mom up to it. Poor mom. She gets, you know, but James and John, because you remember Jesus just doesn't deal with the mom. He goes right to James and John. You don't know what you're asking. You know, he's talking right to them. Let's, mom, thank you. Go have a seat. I'll deal with the, your two sons who are apparently too embarrassed to ask me. All right? Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit your right and the other your left. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they said. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right and my left doesn't exist. There are no such places. Is that what he says? He didn't say that. No, there are places like that. Oh, absolutely. There's a place at my right and there's a place at my left. But they are for those for whom they have been prepared by the Father. And then he gives the principle. He said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. The high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You have to learn the heavenly lesson of servanthood here on earth. And the better you learn it now, the better your position will be in heaven. So you may say, is that really fair or right that what we do here on earth goes on into eternity? Whether it's fair or right, it is what the deal is. So your life here on earth really does matter. And if you learn how to go downward in humility, you'll have a better situation and position and reward in heaven. It's just a fact. But for all of that, whoever it is that's your boss in heaven, whoever it is, they'll be really wonderful about it. And you know what? You will really, really enjoy your boss in heaven. And if you happen to be in charge of anybody in heaven, you'll be wonderful about that too. You'll be like the Roman centurion that said, There's, I'm a soldier under authority of men, men under me, and I'm fine about it. And, and Jesus said, right you are. That's how it is. That's how it is. And so there'll be positions of authority. There'll be positions of responsibility. But there'll be no tyranny and there'll be no jealousy. Now, I've had somebody say to me, and I've thought it myself, then what difference does it make? Kind of like communism. It doesn't matter, right? So just however you are and you'll be happy with what you get, right? Well, you will be happy with what you get, but that's a wrong way to think. The more you serve God with a servant heart here on earth, the greater he's glorified. And that's what you should care about. And it's to those who care about the master's glory that he gives those kinds of positions. That's the whole point. So think differently. I need to think differently. Now, um, concerning different positions in Luke 19, some guys in charge of ten cities, remember? Somebody else in charge of five cities. Remember, based on how faithful they were during the testing period. That's where I get differing responsibilities. You can look at that. Uh, skip the rest of the verse. Let's go to number 11. There will be eternal private ownership in heaven. Say, where do you get that? Well, I would look for a language like stuff of your own. Things of your own. Well, it's in there. For example, in uh, Luke 16, 11 and 12, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What a great verse that is. 
And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, the first half of that second verse talks about stewardship, right? Managing somebody else's property. That's stewardship, right? It's, it belongs to the master. He entrusted to you. He comes back and says, what did you do with it? And you're accountable to him. In the new heaven and new earth, I believe that's done. He just gives it to you and it's yours. And you say, well, isn't it still God's? Yes, but it's different. It's yours. That's how I interpret stuff of your own, things of your own. And remember what he promised to Abraham. Remember in Luke 13, he takes him out and has him look over the land. And remember when Lot goes down to Sodom, takes the well-watered ground down there. And, he's, and then God takes Abraham aside and he says, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now, that is an incredibly important promise. He didn't just say, I'll give to your offspring forever. He said, I will give it to you. Did Abraham receive that promise? Well, Hebrews 11 tells you he did not. He died without having received it. Did God break his word? No, he just hadn't fulfilled the promise yet. When will he fulfill it? In the new earth. And he will get it. That's why I believe in a resurrected earth with some continuity. You see what I'm saying? Because how else can he fulfill this promise? Abraham is going to get the land. And so will his seed forever. And boy, it's going to be beautiful. And you think, is he going to get the best piece of land? Don't worry about it. Really, don't worry about it. Okay? Say, I've got a piece picked out. The world is going to be so different. Whatever place you have in mind, it won't be there. Okay? Uh, Let the Lord solve that. So, summary. Bullets. It will be a place of infinite joy and pleasure. Uh, it will be perfectly conformed to Christ in every way. It will, be, uh, it will contain both a city and a country, the new Jerusalem and the new earth, and the new heaven as well. The new Jerusalem will be immense, a place of perfect union between heaven and earth, a uh, place under no threat, but whose gates stand open constantly for the rich blessing of the nations to be brought within her walls. The future world will be completely free of all evil, death, mourning, crying, and pain. Uh, It will be a place of infinite discovery of Christ himself being the chief object of study. The new earth will be physical. A world to be explored. It will be ravishingly beautiful. It will be eternal. And there will be some kind of feasting there. And there will be work. And we will have possessions. That will be our inheritance. We'll have physical bodies perfect and glorious. We'll enjoy perfect fellowship with people from every nation and language. Perfect fellowship with with people from every era of redemptive history. We'll be abundantly and specifically rewarded for all acts of faith-filled service to Christ and to his people. And we'll never lose those rewards, but we'll enjoy them forever. What benefits of heavenly-mindedness, friends? You can read those yourself. I've looked at them, and they are self-contained. You don't need me to read them over. There are many of them, all right? Uh, Power to resist temptation, energy to advance the kingdom, heavenly mindedness in trials and suffering, um, enabling us to love others better, uh, free us from fear of man, freeing us from discouragement, um, helping us to be excellent counselors, uh, makes us generous with our earthly resources, it sweetens public and private worship, and it frees us from fear of aging and death. Don't fail to read these testimonies of how some of the greatest people in history died. It's just beautiful. Like one guy just saying, glory, 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 over and over for like half an hour before he finally dies. I mean, he's already in heaven before he died. And why does God do that? So that we who are still remaining will be greatly encouraged (laughs) and not fear death. Every one of you, as a result of coming here tonight, should die well. You should die well, all of you. All right? And I want to do the same thing. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time uh, to study tonight, and I thank you for the Word of God, how powerful it is. Thank you for this summer-long study we've had in the future things. Uh, Lord, so many things we said, so many things we didn't say but could have. 
And uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful um, to the things we've learned and that we would, uh, Father, um, embrace them and teach them to others. I pray, O Lord, that this uh, teaching tonight would uh, motivate us as much toward evangelism as last week's study on hell, that we would be uh, vigorous to bring people, just like John says in 1 John, I write this so that your fellowship may be with us and our joy might be complete. I pray that we take this good news and bring it to lost people who aren't, um, uh, uh, who aren't included yet uh, because they haven't come to faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.